We want to continue uh, in our look at Mark chapter 14. If you were with us uh, at the uh, midday Bible study, and if you weren't and you would like to review it, you can uh, review it at vimeo.com slash BR. Uh, we talked about the first 11 verses of Mark chapter 14 at our noon Bible study. Uh, tonight, we want to uh, continue in Mark chapter 14 and look at verses 12 through 26. We're looking at the themes of Lent. Uh, at the noon study hour, we talked about sacrificial love, the love that was shown by the woman who anointed Jesus uh, with the expensive perfume. In this Bible study, we want to talk about sacrifice and betrayal, because that's what's lifted up in the passage, sacrifice and betrayal. On the first of the days of unleavened bread, the day they prepare the Passover sacrifice. His disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations so you can eat the Passover meal? He directed two of his disciples, go into the city. A man carrying a water jug will meet you. Follow him. Ask the owner of whichever house he enters. The teacher wants to know, where is my guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? He will show you a spacious second-story room, swept and ready. Prepare for us there. The disciples left, came to the city, found everything just as he had told them, and prepared the Passover meal. After sunset, he came with the twelve. As they were at the supper table eating, Jesus said, I have something hard but important to say to you. One of you is going to hand me over to the conspirators, one who at this moment is eating with me. Stunned, they started asking one after another, it isn't me, is it? He said, it's one of the 12, one who eats with me out of the same bowl. In one sense, it turns out that the Son of Man is entering into a way of treachery, well marked by the scriptures. No surprises here. In another sense, the man who turns him in turns traitor to the Son of Man. Better never to have been born than to do this. In the course of their meal, having taken and blessed the bread, he broke it and gave it to them. Then he said, take, this is my body. Taking the chalice, he gave it to them, thanking God, and they all drank from it. He said, this is my blood. God's new covenant poured out for many people. I'll not be drinking wine again until the new day when I drink it in the kingdom of God. They sang a hymn and then went directly to Mount Olives. All right. As we said, we are continuing uh, in Mark chapter 14. We left off uh, from uh, this morning's Bible study, the noon Bible study, dealing with Judas's decision to betray Jesus. That was the last thing that was mentioned after Jesus had 
a meal at the house of Simon the leper, and he was anointed by this woman who is not named in Mark, but in John's gospel account, we know her to be Mary, uh, the sister of Lazarus and of Martha. Uh, she, she pours this ointment on Jesus. Everyone who sees it is indignant by uh, what she has done, and uh, Jesus upholds her and criticizes those uh, who were offended by what she did. And among those who were offended was Judas Iscariot. And the last thing that's said in Mark uh, about Judas in, in, in that portion of, uh, of Mark chapter 14 is he went to uh, the chief priests, he went to the religious orthodoxy, and he made arrangements to betray Jesus to them for 30 pieces of silver. So the story now turns. It goes from that scene to the scene of the preparation for uh, the experience of the Passover meal. And we are told in the scripture that uh, the uh, Passover liturgy related to the meal and the Passover preparation was rather lengthy and detailed. Uh, the Passover feast commenced the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was a week-long celebration. Preparations for the Passover began on Thursday morning, which would be in our Holy Week vernacular tomorrow morning, with a diligent search for any leaven which might be in the house. Leaven, or what we more commonly call it, yeast, was not to be used in the bread that was baked in preparation for the original exodus from Egypt because there would not be time for the bread to bake and rise. We find that in Exodus chapter 12, verse 34. Uh, and, and so in keeping with the tradition uh, for the feast of Passover, for the feast of unleavened bread, uh, the disciples and, and, and everyone who shared in the Passover meal was to eat bread without leaven, without yeast. And, and, and so they prepared for that. Also involved in the Passover meal was the preparation uh, of the lamb that was to be uh, eaten at the meal. There, there, there were very extensive preparations that went into uh, Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, if you go back and read it in the Old Testament, read it in Exodus, uh, you'll see that included in the Passover meal was not just unleavened bread, not just uh, roasted lamb, but also bitter herbs. You were to consume bitter herbs, and all of this was symbolic. Uh, the unleavened bread, as we said, had to do with the haste in which the people were to be prepared to move because God was going to act in such a way that Pharaoh was going to release the people. Uh, the Passover lamb symbolized the sacrifice that was to be made uh, on, on, on behalf of the people with the blood of the sacrifice 
supposedly smeared over the doorposts so that when the angel of death passed through, he would pass by the house where the blood was smeared. In every house where the blood was, was smeared, uh, everyone inside the house was saved. Where there was no blood, the firstborn uh, in that household uh, died as the angel of death passed through. But the bitter herbs represented the years of bitterness that the, the people, I say years, the centuries of bitterness that the people endured as servants of the nation of Egypt. So there was tremendous symbolism in this, uh, and, and great preparation, great, great detail was given to the preparation for this meal. And so uh, as, as we move to that portion of Mark, the first thing that we see is that the disciples asked Jesus, where do you want us to go to prepare the meal? Remember, this is not their home. They're from Galilee. They, these are our uh, travelers who have come south from Galilee to share in the Passover meal. And uh, uh, they, they did not have a designated place where they would share. And so they asked Jesus, where is it that you want us to go and make preparation? It's not an unreasonable question, particularly given the fact that everybody was traveling from all around to come share in the Passover Meal. There, there, there were three great festival days in Jewish uh, religious, in the Jewish religious calendar. Uh, Passover was one, Pentecost was a second, and the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles was the third. On these three feast days, it was expected that Jews from everywhere, wherever they lived, they were to stop what they were doing, they were to make their way to Jerusalem in order to participate in the festival and in order to make their sacrifices. So the city was swelling up with people. It was like you going to a particular convention and you still don't have hotel reservations and you're asking, well, where are we going to stay? Where are we going to spend the night? Where are we going to have dinner? That, they're asking, where will we go to prepare? Jesus gives them interesting instruction. He says, when you go into the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Let's stop there for a second because you might miss the fact that this is tremendously symbolic. A man carrying a jar of water would stand out because this was generally considered to be women's work. When, 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 when people did their regular chores. There were chores that men did. There were tasks that women did. And one of the generally accepted female tasks was that of carrying water. Only women carried jars of water on their heads. And so when Jesus tells them to go into the city and there they will see a man carrying a pitcher of water and that they were to follow him, it was a distinction that they would quickly recognize. Then he says something else that's important. He says, go into whatever house he goes into and say to the owner of the house, 
Where is the room where the master will have the feast with his disciples? Where is the room where uh, the master will share in the Passover meal with his disciples? And, and he will show you a room upstairs. We, 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 when we quote this from the King James Version, we say a large upper room. Upper room means upstairs, second story room. Already furnished there, make ready. What's interesting about this is that Jesus had everything already designed for what was about to take place. Nothing came as a shock or a surprise to him, but everything was laid out in intimate detail. It, it intricate, I should say, detail. It helps us to understand that the God that we serve is a God who has everything under his control. The God that we serve is a God who has every aspect of life under his care. That's important for us to realize, particularly at a time such as this. We're, we're gathered here through social media, through computer technology, and, and you're viewing me on your phones or on your laptops or on your tablets because we can't gather in the sanctuary because of this pandemic that has hit us, this COVID-19 virus, and we're under gathering constraints. And it's easy for us to come to the conclusion based upon our circumstances that our situation is out of control, that no one, not even God, is in charge of what's going on, that if anyone is in charge, the virus is in charge. But I am reassured when I read this passage that even in times of anxiety, even in times where we are uncertain, God is never uncertain. Jesus is never uncertain. Jesus is never out of control. We're uncertain about things right now. This, this virus has us all in a state of anxiety, uh, some in a state of fear, some with anger in our minds and in our hearts and resentment at, at, at what we are going through. But never forget that God has everything in his control. Never forget that God is moving us where he would have us to go. And, and I know and I've said this a lot here of late. I know that, that we don't always like the way God does things, but I'm comforted by the fact that he's in charge. And even though I'm not crazy about what God is doing all the time, I'd rather God be in charge than anybody else be in charge. I'd rather God be moving us than we move at our own pace and by our own direction. A man with a water jug will meet you. Follow him. And whatever house he goes into, say to the owner of the house, where is the room where I shall share in the Passover, where the master will share in the Passover? And he will show you a room and everything will already be in the room that you need. And there you can make preparation. So 
that's the first thing that we see, that Jesus is in charge of this entire situation, and he has made preparation in spite of uh, the seeming chaos of the event. Keep reading. After sunset, he came with the twelve. As they were at the supper table eating, Jesus said, I have something hard but important to say to you. One of you is going to hand me over to the conspirators, one who at this moment is eating with me. Stunned, they started asking one after another, it isn't me, is it? He said, it's one of the 12, one who eats with me out of the same bowl. In one sense, it turns out that the Son of Man is entering into a way of treachery well marked by the scripture. No surprises here. In another sense, the man who turns him in turns traitor to the Son of Man. Better never to have been born than do this. In the custom of that time, the supper participants were not sitting at a table as you and I sit at a table for a meal. When uh, It's one of the things about uh, da Vinci's painting uh, of, of the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper uh, that's uh, factually incorrect or culturally incorrect. Da Vinci, who was European, who, who, who was Italian, painted uh, the picture as he would have perceived it uh, for the culture and the time in which he lived. And so he has an elevated table and he has people seated around the table in individual chairs, much as you and I would be seated around a banquet table. In point of fact, in the culture of that day, tables were just a few inches off the ground. And those who sat at the table reclined on uh, uh cushioned chairs, cushioned seats, couches, if you will, uh, around the table. And that would be how Jesus and the disciples were assembled around the table. Uh, and, and it's important for us to recognize uh, that uh, the symbolism of what takes place, as Jesus highlights it, is that one who is close to him is going to be the one who betrays him. He says, one of you sitting here at this table is going to betray me. One of you who has been with me throughout this whole three-year-plus ordeal is going to betray me. When you think about who would turn on Jesus, there, there, there are many folk who could come to mind, M many of the Pharisees who Jesus had confrontation with or the Sadducees who he had had confrontation with. Many of the people that he had had negative relationships or negative experiences with over the course of his ministry, uh, you would normally expect to be those who might betray him uh, to uh, the authorities. But Jesus says, no, it's not a stranger. It's one of you. One of you seated right here at the table with me. And is that not the very definition of betrayal? Betrayal suggests that there is a level of trust and that that trust is forfeited 
by the behavior of the one who betrays. It, just a practical note that, that, that might be helpful to us. Always be cognizant of the fact that, that there are people around you who cannot be trusted. Every circle has somebody in it who cannot be trusted. We, we, we ended the noon Bible study pretty much talking about this very thing. Not everybody who is in the crowd is with the program. Think about all that Jesus and these 12 had shared in. They had heard Jesus preach and teach. They had seen Jesus perform great signs and wonders. They had seen Jesus turn water into wine. They had seen Jesus walk on water. They had seen and heard Jesus speak to wind and waves and cause them uh, to become still and calm. They had seen Jesus feed multitudes with two fish and five loaves of bread. They had seen Jesus expel demons from the lives and the bodies uh, of, of individuals. Uh, they had seen Jesus, even in the case of Lazarus and the widow's son at Nain, raised the dead. Jairus' daughter, a third one, where he raised the dead. They had seen Jesus do all of these wonderful things. They had heard Jesus give all of these marvelous teachings. And yet one from among them would be the one to betray him. Not everyone who's in your crowd is with your program. Uh, Mark's gospel account tells the story differently from the other gospel accounts. Uh, uh, some of the gospel accounts give far greater detail. Matthew and Luke, for example, tell us more about uh, the actual uh, sharing of the Passover meal, how Jesus goes through the process of engaging in the Passover meal and then shares in the Lord's Supper. After he has done the old, he does something new by handing out the bread and the wine a second time. John gives us uh, three chapters of incidents that take place in words of Jesus, I shouldn't call them incidents, of the teaching that takes place in the upper room. He tells us how Jesus washed the, the feet of the disciples around the table and how he taught. John 14, 15, and 16 give us uh, detailed words of Jesus. And, and, and in that, we have what we call the paraclete sayings, where Jesus talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit when he comes. Mark gives us none of that. Mark gives us none of that detail at all. What Mark does tell us is that one at the table with Jesus would betray him. Now, it leads us to ask the question, am I guilty of betrayal? And you might ask yourselves, how is it possible that I could be guilty of betrayal? Well, here's what betrayal involves. It, it, it involves an abuse of trust. Did you know that Jesus has entrusted things to you? 
And I'm not, I'm not just talking about your personal salvation. That's, that, that's one thing that he has entrusted to each of us. But with the coming of the Holy Spirit, Jesus has entrusted gifts and talents to each of us with the expectation that we would use them for his glory, for his honor, and for the betterment of our fellow man. He said in the Sermon on the Mount, let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. We have been gifted by Jesus Christ with things that he expects us to use to glorify him and to benefit one another. And it is a betrayal of Jesus to take from him, to take what he has given to us and then to hoard it or not use it, not employ it in the manner in which he has told us to employ it. And you're sitting there watching me saying, well, I don't think that that applies to me. Well, let's just lift up a couple of things and, and, and see how well you do. I don't know what your specific gift or, or, or talent is. You, you know what your gift is, and you know whether or not you're using it for God's glory and honor. But I can name a couple of generic things and ask you, what are you doing with those? Are, are, are you honoring what Jesus has given to you, or are you betraying him by not honoring what he has given to you? He has given you love. Agape love. Love without limit. Love without restriction. It was love that caused Jesus to come into the world. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. But with that love, he has an expectation that we would love one another. In fact, in John, uh, we, we just made reference to John. He says in that upper room discourse, in that second story discourse, he says, as I have loved you, so should you love one another. So let me ask you as you're viewing this, how you doing with love? Are you honoring Jesus by loving him through your love to one another? Or are you betraying the love that he has given to you by withholding it and not using it in the manner in which he has taught us to use it? Well, right on the heels of love, let's talk about forgiveness. Because the true mark of our love is our capacity to forgive. If you can't forgive, not only do you cut yourself off from the forgiveness of God, that's not me saying that, that's Jesus saying that. Read uh, Matthew chapter 6 where he gives the model prayer and he talks about forgiving the debts of others. And he says, if you do not forgive others their sins, then your father will not forgive your sins. So don't get mad at me because of what the text says. Uh, forgiveness is not just uh, 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 something that has to do with uh, our showing that towards one another, but forgiveness is an expression of our love. If you don't love people enough to forgive them, then you don't love God as you say you do. Now, God doesn't need forgiveness, 
But God does need you to express the love that he has given to you by forgiving one another. And I know that whenever I bring up forgiveness, some people tune right out. Some of y'all might have turned me off right about now. Because whenever we talk about forgiveness, forgiveness is a tough thing for people. And usually people are sitting there saying or thinking, you don't know what they did to me. And you're right. I don't. You don't know how painful it was. You're right. I can't possibly know. I, I, I can speculate, but that's all it would be is a speculation. But I know this. As much as we have been hurt by others, that's how much we have hurt God. That's how much Jesus suffered for us and more. He was beaten all night long for our forgiveness. He was whipped with a cat of nine tails. He was flogged until his back was torn open and bleeding for our forgiveness. A crown of thorns was pressed into his brow and blood came streaming down his face for our forgiveness. A heavy cross was placed upon his shoulders and he was forced to carry it to the place where he would die for our forgiveness. Construction spikes were sledgehammered into his wrists and into his feet for our forgiveness. He hung bled for six hours, gasping for every breath that he took for our forgiveness. They pierced him in his side until blood and water came gushing out for our forgiveness. He died for our forgiveness. So, so when, when, when you want to talk about the fact that I don't know what people did to you, I don't know how badly they hurt you, you're 100% right. I do not know. But I know how much we hurt him. And yet the first words out of his mouth Beaten, battered, sleep-deprived, bruised, mutilated. First words out of his mouth from the cross was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's an act of betrayal for us to claim God's forgiveness and not be willing to forgive others. Well, we, we've lifted up love, we've lifted up forgiveness. There's just one other that I'll lift up, and that has to do with service. Are we willing to serve others with, with, with what God has given us, with the talents and the gifts, with, with the spiritual gifts, with the uh, uh, human gifts, with the material gifts that he has given us? Are we willing to employ those in the service of others? Jesus said about himself, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to offer his life as a ransom for many. And for Jesus, it would have been a betrayal to his father for him not to complete the service assignment that he had been given. Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. As it was true with Jesus, so it is also true with you and me. 
when we fail to serve, we are not honoring God, but we are betraying our Christ who came into the world to do so much for us. One within the circle, one who was in the crowd, but not with the program, would betray Jesus to the others. And they're all asking, is it me? You're not talking about me, are you? Some commentators uh, tried to tighten the focus of this on just two disciples, on John and on Judas. Uh, uh, Their reasoning is that it was the ones who they believe are seated most close to Jesus. And first of all, I don't know how they would know who was seated exactly where. I haven't seen any uh, description in scripture that says that each disciple was placed in a certain uh, position at the table. But uh, they, they try to tighten the focus on just those that were closest to Jesus. But if you read it from the message version, he makes it clear that he was speaking to the entire group of the 12. He was talking to all of them. And he calls them to ask of themselves, it isn't me, is it? Now, call me whatever you want to call me, but I'm, I'm somehow uh, gratified by the fact that each disciple, as message version describes it, went to the process, went through the process of asking, is it me? Or saying, it isn't me, is it? Because it, it, it puts in my mind the fact that they were aware of what they were capable of doing. You know, so, some people have such a, a high opinion of themselves that they don't think they can ever do anything wrong. They, 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 they don't think that they can ever make a mistake. But the wise individual knows that given the right set of circumstances, there is almost nothing that we will not do. I'm always uh, 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 leery of folk who say, I'd never do that. Did you hear about what so-and-so did? Did did you see what so-and-so did? I'd never do that. Given the right set of circumstances, we would do anything. We would kill under the right set of circumstances. We would steal under the right set of circumstances. We certainly lie under the right set of circumstances. So as troubling as it is that all of them would ask, it isn't me, is it? I find it also gratifying in that the disciples were at least displaying the fact that they know that they're not above doing wrong things. They, they, they have been with Jesus, and through being with Jesus, they have experienced uh, the beginnings of a transformation. But they are not so far removed from what they used to be that they forget that it's possible for them to do that again. And, 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 and so they ask, is it me? And Jesus finally says, it's the one who's eating with me. Now, again, some commentators take that to mean that he points Judas out. And if you read it from uh, uh, 
another gospel account, it says that uh, Jesus then speaks to Judas directly. Uh, if you're watching me, if you're still with me, turn to John uh, chapter 13. And you'll see, starting with verse 21, he says, after he said these things, Jesus became visibly upset, and then he told them why. One of you is going to betray me. The disciples looked around at one another, wondering who on earth he was talking about. One of the disciples, the one Jesus loved dearly, was reclining against him, his head on his shoulder. Peter motioned to him to ask who Jesus might be talking about. So being the closest, he said, Master, who? Jesus said, the one to whom I give this crust of bread after I've dipped it. Then he dipped the crust and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon the Iscariot. As soon as the bread was in his hand, Satan entered him. What you must do, said Jesus, do. Do it and get it over with. So, at least from John's gospel account, it says that Jesus spoke directly to his betrayer and told him to go ahead and be quick about what he was doing. But uh, regardless of, of, of which record we go with, whether we go with John's record or Mark's record, what is clear is that Jesus knew first that he would be betrayed and second who his betrayer is. Mark doesn't, doesn't say that he lists him by name, that he singles him out. John says that he does list him by name and single him out. But whether or not we are listed or go unlisted, it tells us that Jesus knows everything about us. He knows what we have done. He knows what we are doing. He knows what we will do. It's a reminder that there is nothing outside of God's control. There's something else that we can lift up from this passage uh, and, and the fact that Jesus knows that he's going to be betrayed. And that is, he knows that betrayal is a part of the process of redemption. In order for humanity to experience redemption, betrayal has to be a part of that process. And so Jesus is willing to endure the betrayal because he knows that on the other end of the betrayal, the, 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 the higher end of the betrayal is going to be the redemption of humanity. There's a lesson in that for us this evening. Sometimes in order to achieve the greater good, we've got to go through some tough times. We've got to go through uncomfortable periods. We've got to go through things that we don't necessarily want to go through. We're in the midst of this pandemic right now and, and, and as a result of this pandemic, uh, orders have been given to us from our civic authorities, our governor, our mayor, our president, 
to stay at home, to practice social distancing, to stay away from each other. Businesses uh, have been asked to close. Many businesses have been forced to close. Uh, people have been asked uh, to stay uh, away from one another and to stay in their homes. And it is uncomfortable. It is inconvenient, not uncomfortable to be in your home, but it's uncomfortable to be confined. We're not used to being confined. Even when we say, I want to be left alone, it's our choice when we want to be left alone, and it's our choice when we want to re-engage. But under these constraints, choice has been taken from us. It's an inconvenient thing. But through this period of inconvenience, it's being done so that a higher good can take place. It's being done as we are constantly reminded that lives might be saved, that, that, that the vulnerable might be able to survive through this pandemic and come out whole. As this is true presently in our physical lives, this is also true in our spiritual lives. Often God carries us through difficult times and difficult situations. And we are made to wonder why. We're made to ask, God, what is it that you're doing by bringing me through this terrible ordeal? And, and we don't always understand. We don't always appreciate what God is doing. But if we remember what's going on in this passage, how Jesus knew that he was going to be betrayed. In fact, knew who his betrayer was, and yet he allowed the betrayal to take place anyway. Remember, he's God. Jesus could have stopped the betrayal at any time had he wanted to, but to stop the betrayal would be to stop the salvation process that God had initiated. And Jesus recognized his role in that salvation process, and he was willing to go through with his role. He looked at us and he saw how desperately we needed salvation. And he was willing to endure suffering for us so that the higher good can be accomplished. Isaiah said he was wounded for our transgression and bruised for our iniquity and the chastisement of our peace was placed upon him and it was by his stripes that we have been healed. It's, it, it, it's gratifying to know that as we go through the process of suffering, there's a higher good that awaits us on the other side. And, and, and what, it, what it calls for us to do is to hold on through our suffering, knowing that it won't last forever and knowing that the benefit outweighs the detriment. Well, as we hurry on, in the course of their meal, verse 22, having taken and blessed the bread, he broke it and gave it to them. Then he said, take, this is my body. Taking the chalice, he gave it to them, thanking God, and they all drank from it. He said, this is my blood, God's new covenant, poured out for many people. I'll not be drinking wine again until the new day when I drink it in the kingdom of God. Mark, as we have alluded to earlier, 
uh, is scarce on the details. In other gospel passages, we see uh, the Lord's Supper framed as a contrast to the old Passover meal. It says that when the old Passover meal was completed, then Jesus initiates the new. Mark doesn't go into that kind of detail. But what he does tell us is significant. As there was symbolism in the old Passover meal, the symbolism of the unleavened bread, the symbolism of the bitter herbs, the symbolism of the roasted lamb, the symbolism of the blood sprinkled upon the doorpost, symbols that we did not even bring up earlier, the symbolism of eating with uh, sandals not on your feet. That's why Jesus was able to go around and wash the disciples' feet because they were to take off the sandals while they ate the meal, the symbolism of having uh, their robes uh, raised up and girt around their waists, uh, which was to symbolize the rapidity with, of movement that they were uh, to have when the word came that they were going to be set free from Egypt. With all of the symbolism that was involved in the old Passover meal, Jesus also employs symbolism with the new Passover meal, what, what we like to call the second Passover. But the symbolism is brief and to the point. He took the bread. He blessed it. He gave it to them. And he said, this is my body. Then he took the cup and he gave it to them. And they drank from the cup. And as they drank, he said, this cup is the New Testament, the new covenant in my blood. This is my blood that you are drinking. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do honor, you do show forth the Lord's sacrifice until he comes again. So the symbolism of the second meal is brief, but it's stark. Bread represents the body. Wine represents the blood. It is to be consumed. It is to be eaten. And whenever something is eaten, it becomes a part of us. It, it starts off as something when it's in our hands. But when we take it into our mouths and when we consume it, when we chew it, when we swallow it, whatever it was, it ceases to be. It becomes a part of us as it goes through the process of digestion. It becomes a part of us, so much a part of us that it becomes indistinguishable from the rest of us. And that's what Christ desires from us. He does not want us to simply follow him. Where he leads me, I will follow. That's a nice hymn. But Jesus wants more than that. He wants more than for us to follow him. He wants to be a part of us. He wants us to be indistinguishable from him. Again, referencing uh, John chapters 14, 15, and 16, where he gives this lengthy discourse that Jesus gives in the upper room. In five places, he talks about the work of the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the friend, the advocate, 
the counselor that Jesus is going to send. I'm going away, but the comforter is going to come. And one of the things he says about the coming of the Holy Spirit, the coming of the paraclete, is that he will make his home in us. He will dwell with us so that when people see us, they no longer see us, but they see Christ dwelling in us. Take the bread and eat it, consume it. It's my body. Take the blood and drink it, consume it. It's my blood. Let me become a part of you. Let me indwell you. Let me fortify you. Bread and wine are food. And food is ingested in order to fortify the body. We become fortified. We become strengthened as we allow Christ to become a part of us. As we allow his body and his blood to become a part of who we are, then we are fortified. Our lives are enriched. We are strengthened for the journey. And the suggestion is, if you don't identify with Christ, not if you don't partake of the physical elements, the bread and the wine, but if you don't identify with Christ, then you're lacking strength. Strength comes from the indwelling presence of God. And where the presence of God is not dwelling within us, we lack strength. And so after Jesus addresses the fact that he will be betrayed, and after he shares in the Passover meal, he institutes this meal uh, that's filled with meaning and symbolism of the indwelling presence of God that we should all desire as we move in his world. There is work for us to do in this world. It's Wednesday night as, as this is being recorded and as you are viewing this, if you're viewing this initially, you may be viewing it later, but as we're doing it, it's Wednesday night uh, and, and we're just a day removed from uh, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. There is so much that is going on that we need to be a part of, that we can't be a part of unless we are endued with spirit power. In this activity, we learn the importance of the power and the presence of God in our lives. One of the old hymn writers, I don't know his name, but he wrote, use me, Lord, in your service. Draw me nearer every day. I'm willing to run all the way. If I falter while I'm trying, don't be angry. Let me stay. I'm willing to run all the way. What does that have to do with this? You can't run if you ain't got no strength. You can't be usable to God if you don't have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. If Jesus is not in you, then Christ can't come out of you.
and he needs to be indistinguishable. That's the last thing I'm going to say. I'm, I'm, I'm right at the, at, at the point of, of closing. Uh, the last thing I want to say is that he needs to be indistinguishable and it needs to be thoughtless. You know, some things we do without thinking about it. I've said this earlier. When, when we're driving a car, uh, driving for most of us has become so natural that we don't have to think about it. We don't have to think when we want to accelerate. When we want to accelerate, our foot automatically moves to the right pedal and we depress. When we want to break, our, our, our feet automatically move to the left pedal and we depress. When we want to turn, our hands automatically begin to turn the wheel in the direction that we want to go. It becomes a thoughtless process. We, we do it so much, so often, so regularly that we don't have to think about it. When Christ becomes a part of us, then we don't have to think about being holy. We don't have to think what it means to be Christian. We simply are. We love without thinking about it because we know that love is a natural part of who we are. We forgive without thinking about it because we know that forgiveness is a natural part of who we are. We serve without thinking about it because we know that service is a natural part of who we are. If Christ is in us, if his body and his blood fortify us, strengthen us, then we don't have to think about being a Christian. We don't have to think about being righteous. We don't have to think about being fair. We don't have to think about being holy. We simply are. Because it's the Holy Spirit that is in charge of our lives. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to share in this word. We pray that those who have heard have been helped by the experience. Let a seed have been planted in our hearing that will reap a bountiful harvest in our living. Bless us, dear God, as we continue to endure through this pandemic, as we continue to struggle with the changes that confront us every day. Keep us in your protective care. Keep anxiety and fear away from us and reassure us that everything is all right because you are in charge. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.